it like this, and then I'll because I'm a I'm a mic hog. I will just go for it. All right, that's okay, actually not that's bad. That's good. Okay. You hear the tinkling of glass. Exactly. Give it that real lounge feel. Yeah, and you hear just enough of the music in the background where I don't have to worry about copyrights. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of there. Hey, everybody. Welcome down to uh, another edition of Dive Bar Mitzvah. Hey, it is me, your friend Ian. Thanks for listening tonight, and thanks for listening all the time up leading to now. We've had actually a really good run. Um, I'm not saying that this is ending at all, but this is our first uh, episode of the new year, and it gives me pause where I think this is our 17th episode, and our listenership has been actually pretty damn solid, so thank you, but uh, your job's not done. Please tell all your friends about this, and rank us really highly on iTunes. I think that does something. (laughs) You know, we just want to get out there as much as we can for this little dumb project I'm doing. But now I'm not doing it from cold anymore. Last week I was in uh, chilly, chilly Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today I am happy to tell you I am in the Bywater area of New Orleans, Louisiana at Vaughn's. Uh, great historic little dive bar here in the Marini. Are we still in the Marini? No, we're in Bywater. So this is just this is the Bywater. This is Bywater. Specific area. Been here since 1959. Uh, it's uh, famous for live music, which is odd, because when you walk in here, you wouldn't think, because there's not a lot of room here. Uh, Kermit Ruffins famously held down residency here for a number of years, and it even featured in Treme. So it is a quintessential New Orleans place, almost. Today's episode is going to be a little nerdy. Uh, you might remember a couple episodes I had Chuck Statler on. Uh, he uh, was the man who directed all of the good Devo videos, Elvis Costello, all that great stuff. And you probably to- could tell by how long that episode went on that this is my this is my honey spot. This is where I get excited. This is my favorite era of music. And uh, tonight's guest plays into this uh, very much so. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something about the late 70s, early 80s that always appealed to me. Uh, my father's uh, record store was in that period. People say they listen to music from their happiest period. I must have been my happiest when I was like six. Uh, so I listened to all these albums and uh, in Pop's record store. And now I have a big collection of all of this music at home. Now, there are a lot of big labels of that period, but perhaps one of the biggest and one of the most influential uh, was IRS. They had everybody from the Cramps somehow to even having Black Sabbath on in the late 80s. I don't understand how that how that happened at all. But of course, it started off the Go-Go, started off R.E.M. Um, and we are here today talking to today's guest, uh, John Guinari. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Ian. My pleasure. And what was your official title there? I know titles were probably loose at IRS, but what, what was on your business card if, they, if you had one? Uh, well, it was A&R, International, and Production. We were a small company, so a lot of jobs overlapped. Yeah, I would imagine so. And I was a third person hired. Okay. And uh, I was hired hired by Miles Copeland out of New yep. York. I went to New York, left New Orleans, went to New York, sold tour merchandise with the police. One day, Miles walks in and says, I just started a record company in Los Angeles. If you want a job, be out there in two weeks. So I'll come back to New Orleans, sell everything, throw clothes on my Volkswagen. Yeah, damn straight. Drive to Los Angeles, drive on the A&M lot where there's two people working for IRS Records and I walk in the door and it's like, hi, I'm, I'm ready to start. <laughs> and they look at me, it's like, who's this guy? Yeah, who the hell I said, are yeah, you? Miles hired me. I'm like, oh, okay, there's a desk and a phone. Get to work. So and is I, this a large cavernous open space or a small t- space with two people in it? No, it was... Because um, the was, AMN, A&M lot's kind of historic. I mean, a lot of great stuff's well, coming out Well, the A&M uh, lot was beautiful. It used to be Charlie Chaplin's movie studio. Mm-hmm. And our offices was over the sound stage. 
and we think it was the, well miles managed to get the office space from a and m for free for staffing but we think someone in a and m had this twisted sense of humor because we had irs and we shared offices with the carpenters <laughs> and one time in my early days me and someone else we went through all the carpenters gold records and drew mustaches on them and we got called down to jerry moss's office i assume the list of p- potential suspects was very short and it began to end with anyone who worked at oh, irs yeah well you know i was an obvious and then we got dragged down to uh, jerry moss's office by richard carpenter oh geez and he was there i'm tired of being the butt of jokes on this lot and i was in like sobbing and like standing in front of like the principal by jerry yeah moss. and it was totally cool and after that it was all cool and you know you know, we got along well, but he would never let me drive any of his cars. He drove to... Jerry Moss or, or no, Richard, Carpenter. Richard Carpenter? Really, you got along with... A you different ended up car getting for along. Different, yeah, and Karen Carpenter would come in with a little tennis outfit, and the cramps would be sitting there. It was kind of <laughs> like... It was wild. It was just such a, a twist. Yeah, so you actually got to know... So somehow... Because, I mean, this is the thing that always has fascinated me about Los Angeles, as somebody who's never lived there, is how it's basically a big mad fold-in of a town where people you would never expect not only know each other but are, and are friends. So to see, you know, a, a Richard Carpenter and the Cramps on the same place at the same time is, is kind of mind-bending for yeah, me, John. Yeah, but, it, you know, it was common. I mean, yeah. you run into these people at the market or, you know, I mean, it was a small, com- you know, community at that, especially at that time, not because of the Carpenters or the Cramps, but even within... You know, the whole early punk days, mm-hmm. because, I mean, it was just kind of getting started in 1980. Yeah. You know, with The Mask and uh, Blackies, which was on La Brea, um, Hong Kong, Ma- uh, Madame Wong. Yep. Those were the beginnings of the punk days in Los Angeles. Man. Now, uh, let's actually take a step back. You're a hometown boy right here, Nola, uh, born and raised. Mm-hmm. How so? And what was your entrance to the music industry? Well, in the seventies, early seventies, I started in radio actually, and when they had Progressive FM, okay, album oriented, album oriented stuff. And then I worked at a local record store called Jim Russell's Records. I know Jim Russell on Magazine Street. Still there? Yeah, but he's not. Yeah, he passed away. And then I started working at Mushroom Records, which was. a record store op- uh, operated, owned and operated by the Tulane student body. So I was there for like six years and we became like, you know, the place in the Southeast where, you know, we were on the cutting edge of whatever was happening. Yeah. And every band that came to town, you got to go to the Mushroom because I used to do all the retail reports to the trade magazines, you know, Record World and Billboard. They'd come out, what's your top 10 records? Uh, number one this week is the Stranglers. Yeah, and you can yeah, pretty right. much just make up whatever you yeah. want. Yeah, and for that, you know, the guy from A&M Records say, hey, the Stranglers are playing Chicago next week. Want to go? Sure. Yes, as a matter of fact, On I do. Plane. Really? So, yeah, so I would be able to do that. So it wasn't payola. It was just taking care of people. Yeah, you know, but... um. And, and it is was Mushroom great. still around real quick? Yeah. Because I yeah. was there today. Yeah, they're still there. I was, I, Actually, I, I, I they're was, not still around. It just closed right after you left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know they had been around so long. I mean, we had in stores. We, I mean, Mott the Hoople came by. Uh, Elvis Costello on his first trip. Then that was a big inspiration when I first met Jake. Jake Riviera. Riviera. Yeah. Four miles. And, he, and then after I met Jake, I wanted to start my own record label. 
Really? And okay, because at that point he was at Stiff or he moved over to Radar uh, no, or whatever? He was, no, it was Stiff. Okay. He was still with Stiff Records. And Elvis came into the Mushroom and set up the cash register, ran the cash register, and was ringing up sales and stuff like that from Tulane students. And that night he was playing at Jed's, which okay. which I think that might have been in 78, 1978 or okay. whatever. So I got to, I stayed in touch with Jake. And then later, Squeeze came through, and that's when I first met Miles. And they were like, you know, 17 and 18 years old, and, you know, they couldn't afford hotel rooms. So my girlfriend at that time let them crash at the house, and I just stayed in touch with Miles and just constantly asked him, Can I have a job? I want a job. I I knew there was a dead end in New Orleans. Because how old are you at this point? Because you're just a pup. And just happened to be a kid working at 25. a record store. Okay, so you're not that much a, of a pup. You're a, you're a good looking dog. So you and you just happen to be working at Mushroom Records, and just the world comes to you, and, and that that's just amazing. That doesn't seem like something that happens much anymore. Well, I mean, I just knew. I mean, I had you know, I wanted to get out of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew if anything in the music business, it was not going to happen here. Yeah, and it was either New York or Los Angeles. And my ultimate goal, I said, and I was thinking, okay, yeah, I'll go to New York because I really want to move to England. Yeah. And Miles had his office over there. And that's why when I went to New York and sold tour merchandise for the police. and Yeah, so and what, was the, what was the job that took you to New York? Uh, well, Miles had a company called Faulty Products, mm-hmm. which was an English company. And he would bring singles back in a trunk. On Laker, Freddie Laker Airlines. Okay. And he'd have some guy selling them. He'd go down to Bleaker Bob's with, you know, yeah. 25 singles by Menace. And say, put him in Bleaker Bob's. So, you know, that's what I was thinking. I'm going to do that. And Miles would walk in because our office was at Ian Copeland's office mm-hmm. at FBI. And we shared an office with Shane um, Friedman who managed John Cale. Okay. So one day Miles walks in and said, I need the Buzzcocks equipment driven to Detroit tonight. Can you do that? Sure, Miles, no yep. problem. All right. And then one day he walked in and said, I just started a record company in Los Angeles. You need to be out there in two weeks. And I'd never had Los Angeles in my mind. Like, no, because you'd pretty much gotten all the way to the pond hoping to I jump figured, over. Yeah, next, next move, London. Yeah. So Los Angeles said, sure, whatever. You know, so I went out there and. It beats driving the Buzzcocks stuff to Detroit. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, uh, it, in LA at that time was not yet a known scene, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, it was still in its early days. Yet, you and this like, is when the, kind of the industry had changed from being New York based, and it was in process of becoming kind of LA based. Right. You know, I mean, with the total antithesis of what we're talking about, like bands like the Eagles, bands like that, suddenly it became more of a place where music came from, as opposed to where just music was being printed up and pushed yeah, out. Yeah, New York, you know, post C, well during the CBGBs and Mud Club and Danceteria. The New York bands were primarily more the art bands, like the Television mm-hmm. and Blondie, and yeah, obviously the Ramones, Talking Heads. But Los Angeles had its own; it had morphed from whatever surf music and what you know other things. So uh, it was a great time. I mean, I'm, I got there in February of 1980, and um, it was just a great time, you know, because there were a lot of bands. Major labels did not want to know of anything about any of these bands. Yeah, I mean, which is odd, because, I mean, by this time, I mean, we're three years in. You know, I mean, uh, the first Clash album is, is one of the best-selling imports in America, but it's just... And so, and at this point, even uh, a, a dog with such good smelling as the music industry did not see this as a viable, a viable option. No, they didn't. And, um, you know, I'd always been a club rat back in... 
living here. So, and nobody at IRS at the time, the other two employees, I mean, they were like, you know, one guy was a surfer. The other guy was like a UCLA graduate, put up a couple shows. So my natural inclination was to go to the clubs. Mm -hmm. And I'd go see, you know, Walla Voodoo, the Go-Go's, you know, whomever. And I remember seeing the Go-Go's and I was blown away and I walked in and I got to be friends with them. And I kept saying, Miles, you got to sign this band. You got to sign this band. No other labels were interested. I think Electra Records was sniffing around, but... Nobody wanted to do it. it was because still, and they even, to get back to Stiff Records, they had a single out overseas. Yeah, they, they, could get, their, they could put out an album in England, but they couldn't do it here Well, they still. didn't put the album out in England. The single was uh, the original version of We Got the Beat. Yes. And I don't remember what the B-side was, but uh, it was a different... How re- much more? How much more. And then it was re-recorded, obviously, with yeah. uh, Richard Goddard. And um, I remember Miles had the idea of hooking him up with Richard Goddard because of the whole girl group type of thing mm-hmm. that he was he did Blondie yeah so it was a natural and I remember Miles walking in our office one day and said so go the go-go's so goes IRS and it was true because you know I mean my IRS was this at the a, time was this, a, was this a prophetic I mean was he looking at this as you guys are screwed or was no, there no, some no, optimism no, behind this because I mean IRS at that point Outside of Wasmo Nariz and Root Boy Slim and the Cramps, <laughs> there was nothing commercial, and yeah. a lot of it was English. You know the, um, you know we had John, a John Cale record, we had the Fall. Mm-hmm. I mean, not yeah, not big commercial movers. stuff. Yeah, and um, but the Go Go was Go Go's was a game changer. And after the Go Go's had legs, I remember <laughs> one other day I walked into Miles's office and I'd been to the whiskey to see the cramps on a Sunday night and Walla Voodoo opened for them and I walked in Monday morning and I said Miles I saw this great band last night called Walla Voodoo you gotta sign him and he said give me the guy's phone number <laughs> so I Stan Ridgeway here it is no it was Philip Culp who okay. was the manager All for right. Walla Voodoo and he picks up the phone Philip Culp Miles Copeland Walla Voodoo wanna sign him call me <laughs> and he just totally after that just, uh, just he one... took my word on it wow and uh, we signed Walla Voodoo. And now, did you how did you did you have this carte blanche for a long period of time? I mean, that's just that's a that's a level of of autonomy that you just don't hear about at all. To to have to be able to bend someone's ear to the point where he's making a phone call well, like that. I didn't that have is the actual huge. signing authority, but but, oh, yeah, but it's good it, ass. It, car- it carried a lot of weight with it yeah. because I did, you know, and I got to develop a good relationship with the bands because that's something I'd been doing. Anyway, for years, from my you know background in radio mm-hmm. and you know retail, so I mean I you know I, wor- I got along well with the bands like with the English Speed and the Alarm and you know I brought in the Dead Kennedys you know I found the Bangles yeah you know so all those things um, he and don't run through them too fast because we'll be coming back to a lot of this in a little bit <laughs> but you're, these are like this is like we're just giving out spoilers for what's coming up that's yeah fine. so I mean he, you know he trusted my judgment on things. Which was, you know, encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I would think so, because, I mean, this was the guy who you were pretty much just waiting to follow into war, and now he's letting you call some orders. That's got to feel yeah, very nice. Yeah, great, you know. And um, he was, you know, Miles was a great, char- great mm-hmm. character. Not a character, but he was very astute, and uh, it was just a great time. Yeah. 
And how much, I mean, because of course now, I mean, most people who know who Miles Copeland is know him as Stewart's brother. How much did the police give him the authority to kind of do st- to call shots like this? Well, okay, the police pretty much had zero to do with IRS. Yeah, of course. It was the money that Miles made as his management yeah. commission that bankrolled everything. Yeah. And there were times, I think, when Miles... Um, he had trouble getting money from A and M to for operational expenses. You know, he would get draw an advance maybe from management commissions. Mm-hmm. You know, you know because like, the police um, were an A and M band to further their money A&M. things. Yeah. yeah, and they were like happening. So you know, he had a lot of leverage at A and M Records, and um, but whatever you know, they A and M gave us a lot of leeway as far as you know the office space. And when Miles first signed the police. And squeeze at A&M. He says, I don't want an advance. Put my records out. Yeah. And that was the whole pitch with the police. And they kind of figured, like, how can we lose? Exactly. So they're getting more on the back end, just nothing on the front end. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, um, you know, and then obviously with squeeze and the police doing really well at A&M Records, you know, he had a lot of, he had some clout over there. And it obviously, I mean, you know. It helped us obviously with IRS, you know, but I mean, we really learned a lot. We had to prove ourselves because we were coming from a real 70s mentality, mm-hmm. you know, with band, you know, more different types of bands like Supertramp and, you know, whatever. Bands with, yeah, other, other bands things. with hair in their eyes. Yeah, yeah. and um, sticks, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, here we were, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. You know, we were just flying by the seat of our pants, and it's like, it's like, why can't we do this? Well, we want to have a, the, our 45s to not have a small hole, a big hole. We want a small hole, and we want to have a special label on this 45 with a picture sleeve. Yeah. And can we do, like, a limited edition 1,000 on green vinyl of the Clark Kent single? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, we were a pain in the ass. Yeah. You know, but um, it was a... And but that, that opinion, I assume, changed very quickly when you guys started making lots and lots of money. I mean, going back to the Go Go's, I mean, that, a bigger album in 1982, you probably couldn't find. Yeah, you know, and it never—I don't think it ever got to number one. Okay. And it was a little frustrating, and and you know, we we would say, well, if this would have been on CBS, it would have been number one. Uh. And you kind of think, and we no, there was no regrets because we had a lot of autonomy in AM and AM was. A great, great bunch of people. So A and M is the distributor, even with IRS in the picture. If if if, A&M, or if IRS had gone through CBS, it would have been number one. Yeah, because outside okay. of North America, we were licensed by CBS. Our deal with A and M was only for the U.S. and Canada. I see. Okay. And then outside of North America, we were CBS. But you know, CBS was a major, not a. They were a huge label, and A and M went through RCA for distribution. Okay. And. Um, but I mean, you know, it's just you can. Always, there's always conjecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you never can tell. But I mean, so they had to stop looking at you guys like the smelly kids on the block when you guys started basically yeah, printing money. Yeah, it took us a little more serious. Yeah, you know, and then uh, you know things like uh, the English beat and the alarm and you know REM alt and REM didn't really start selling until they didn't have their first hit record until IRS left A and M. Okay, f- it was their. F- what fifth album document probably yeah yeah yeah. so but rem had gained a lot of uh street cred Mm -hmm. oh yeah i mean it had been bubbling under for a long time so um and you think walla buddha was a uh, top a hit single mexican radio yeah yeah 
And actually, and let's talk about this. Let's go back to Wall of Voodoo because I mean, how much of this? Was, I mean, was right time, right place with having MTV come up, or how much of it were you guys feeding the machine to make MTV what it ended up being? Well, it was easy then because a lot of bands weren't making videos. Yeah. And the guy that did the video for Mexican Radio, I mean, that's an iconic video. It's classic. Yeah. Thinks, the first thing you're going to say is when you think of that video, you think of Stan's face coming to the pot of beans. Yeah, of course. And a guy named Frank Delia, Delio. I think was okay. his name. He did the video, but it was you know it's a great video. But at that point, it, you know when you're when you're that early into what ended up being a medium, you just kind of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And if it's the lead singer's head coming out of some beans, yeah, damn straight, <laughs> it worked. And you know, I mean, um, the other thing ultimately what that led to because we had some pretty interesting videos that our art director Carlos did, Carlos Grasso, who actually left Los Angeles and lives around a corner from me here in Bywater. Oh, that's great. Okay. And um, it opened the door for MTV asked Miles to have a TV show called Cutting Edge. See, if you look right here, I have I have two notes for MTV's influence. And there you go. Wall of Voodoo and Cutting Edge. Yes. Yep. But, I mean, you guys are pretty much your own autonomous unit. I know I use autonomous oh, a lot in this, yeah, but, we, yeah, I mean, you guys could kind of do what you want, really. Yeah, we del- pretty much delivered product to... A&M, and they handle the uh, distribution and manufacturing so and it's great. some of the marketing. It was great. The only time there was any resistance was when I'd convinced Miles to sign the Dead Kennedys. Now, that's actually moving <laughs> on right now. Actually, literally, to the two lines down <laughs> with Faulty Products. You're the head of Faulty Products. Well, yeah, the, the Faulty thing, I mean, Faulty had existed in England as a distribution company. Mm-hmm. For Miles had three independent labels. Now, I'm going to see if I can remember this. Deptford Fun City. I, yeah. Uh, illegal Records. And I can't remember. And there's the another one. one with two reels of tape. Oh, just... Step Forward Records. There you go. And Chelsea was on Step Forward Records. Okay. Illegal was The Police. Deptford Fun City was John Cale and Squeeze. Okay. So that, you know, so Faulty was like Which is a, ironic because you know how Squeeze got their name? Uh... I don't remember the final Velvet Underground album that had no original members. It's called Squeeze, and they oh. and it was so derided and so hated they thought it would be a funny thing to name their band. I didn't know that. Trivia time. Sorry. Now now that. go on. Now I will stop regurgitating stuff I've heard, and now you tell me things that you've lived. So the idea was <laughs> to bring Faulty to the U.S. once again. Miles would say we need to have some more singles, so I'd fly to England with a trunk, mm-hmm. and they'd load me up in England with all these. Indy 45. Yeah. And I would carry this trunk back. Is on. that legal? Because this sounds wildly illegal. And then if it's illegal, then why not Then why not something that might even make more money than, than 45s? We got trucks. Well, because, full you know, I mean, we, we, he, we would bring a lot in and I'd like put them on consignment, mm-hmm. like in record stores in Los Angeles. And then as the import market got tighter because you had like Jim Records and Greenwood, yes. which were bringing things in. But we're doing very well because the import market was really strong. At yeah, this it was really, really strong then. So it was like, okay, let's do some P, uh, P&D deals, which was production and distribution deals mm-hmm. with some labels here. And that's when I did uh, um, Alternative Tentacles Yeah, with Biafra, of course. with the Dead Kennedys. And then we did, he had his own label with Alternative Tentacles. He had TSOL, MDC, uh, DOA, mm-hmm. and we did stuff like that. So we started manufacturing and just distributing local labels. We did the... Um, now, is this still going through A&M? Because, no, I mean, it was how, independent. Okay, because, yeah. Well, I mean, what kicked it off was 
this is what was the kicker. Before we were doing the imports and stuff like that, and then we had signed the de Dead Kennedys, and we even had it in A&M catalog number, which is SP70016. Still remember to this day. Yeah. And Jerry Moss said, I'm friends with the Kennedys family, and there's no way I'm putting out a record by a band called the Dead Kennedys. And Miles said, paraphrasing, fuck, <laughs> you, fuck you, I'm going to do it anyway. So it was me and one other guy. We pressed up something like 15,000 Dead Kennedys Jesus. albums. And we're on the phone to Tower Records, Licorice Pizza, Music Plus. Hey, I got the new album of the Dead Kennedys. Yeah. The Dead Kennedys were hot because Holiday in Cambodia was getting tons of play on KROQ. And other, you know, college radio stations. So, and you're just a guy calling out of the blue going, guess what? It's like, hey, man, we got the new Dead Kennedys. Like, you want 100? No problem. So we started doing that, and then it just kind of like snowballed, and we did other things. We did the Circle Jerks. Yep. Uh, we did um, some a sing couple singles with um, Social Distortion. Okay. And then we distributed the Bangles. And yeah. at that point, they had done their own 45 called Getting Out of Hand. It was on Down Kitty Records. And, you know, uh, Susanna and Debbie and Sus um, and Vicky would sit on the floor of my office putting a little 45s in a single sleeves. And, and I'd, we'd have like, you know, 100 of them and put them on consignment at Tower and wow. Sunset. Yeah. And, and then afterwards, um, I got Miles to see the show. I said, man, I got to sign these. I got to sign the bangles. So, and there were the bangs then. Yeah. Because ultimately it found out there was a band from New Jersey called The Bangs. So they had to change their name. And uh, he didn't want to put them on IRS because of the obvious competition with the Go-Go's. Okay. So he managed them and then did a label shopping and got him a uh, deal with uh, CBS Records. Wow. Look at that. And what we did do between what I did forget to tell you about was after that independent single that we distributed of theirs, we did an EP called The Bangles. It had five songs on it. Okay. And the EP was produced by Craig Leon. And Craig also did the Ramones yes. and Bondi and Suicide mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And we had the single, the radio-friendly single of um, Real World. I had David Kahn remix, and David Kahn was the in-house producer for Howie Klein's label, 415 Records. Okay. Who later went on to be a staff producer at CBS and produced the Bangles records on CBS. Jeez. And uh, this is before he did the Tony Bennett album. That's where the money is, though. Let's be I know, honest. You know, what can I say? Um, now, and a quick side question: uh, Was Chrome? Did Chrome ever do an album through there? Yeah, because yeah. I've seen conflicting reports. Yeah, we did a record with Chrome. I can't remember the title of it. And, and uh, Chrome, I believe, to be one of the best of the mostly unheard noise '80s. Chrome is right there at the top for me. I, I love me some Chrome. And you'd think, I mean, it's just I'm, noisy bleats that would be hard to get into, but I, Chrome is somehow both cacophonous and catchy, and I never understood how they do it, but they do it really well. I'm surprised you brought that, because that's pretty obscure. Okay. And I think the album was called, I'm just trying to remember, Third, Third from the Sun, yep. something like that. And Damon Edge would call me constantly, and I'd listen to it, and, you know, we did the record, and I think he did his own video, and Helios... Creed, his partner, yep. was not, I don't think he was involved with it much. It kind of separated their ways, and you know, uh, he was kind of doing his own thing. And I think he had a record on Subterranean Records. I know they point. had some on Ralph. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but yeah, we put the, that record out. Didn't sell that well, and um, 
You know, I stayed in touch it, with it. It sold so poorly, people doubt it actually exists. Yeah, well, I, ha- I have some copies. <laughs> hey, you know. well, we're stopping by your place after and I, this. I'll step. give you a great deal, like a thousand bucks. Hey, you know what? You're talking my language here. Let's do it. Um, so, and, and, and let's take a couple steps back. We'll go uh, to the opposite end of, of uh, Chrome. We'll go to REM. And you knew REM when they were just young kids. What did you think about these weird kids from Georgia? Well, they came to us from Ian mm-hmm. Copeland because they were doing the college circuit out of uh, Athens, playing like the 40-watt club yep. and stuff like that. And they had, uh, actually, they came to the attention of IRS by a guy named Mark Williams, who was a college rep at A&M. And then he brought it to the attention of Jay Boberg, who was the president of IRS. And Jay became a huge fan of... Um, of REM mm-hmm. and really championed them to Miles to get him signed to IRS. Miles d- was not a fan of REM. Really? Didn't Never. see it at all. Okay. Because, I mean, they're the, they were kind of like the anti image. Yeah, they're pastoral. You know? They're very, they're country leaning without actually being there. Yeah, yeah and they were more the a folky Americana mm-hmm. type of thing. And um, it's a much better way of saying what I tried to say. Thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, it was. You know, no, you, know, you did a much better job. And Miles was like, you know, you got to have that image. You know, you, you know, the police, three guys, blonde hair, the cramps, you know. Yeah. It yeah. had that image. And R.E.M. was the anti-image. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Stipe was like, you know, walked in the office, he smelled bad and would never look at you. <laughs> you know, so. Who's signing that? Not yeah. Miles, yeah. And um, it, it finally, I think he ultimately, you know, realized their commercial potential. But he was never a, a fan of theirs. Mm-hmm. And it's okay, you yeah. know. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the, the checks cashed all the same, no yeah, matter what he you know, thought but, of uh, it. But, it, you know, they worked hard. You know, they gave IRS a lot of credibility in the uh, college radio market because yeah. that was starting to, you know, get really popular. Because it's pretty we, synonymous. I mean, by, you know, like 86, 87, when you thought IRS, you thought REM. I mean, now Go-Go's are about four years past. And they were already kind of like in the pop, real like commercial pop mm-hmm. thing. And then we had The Alarm, which did great at college yep. radio, we, which was a U.K. signing. And then we had English Beat, totally, you know, great credibility and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, and so, and and let's, before we jump forward too far, um, when did you realize, or did you realize at the time that this was an important era in music? I know Um, that's a bit esoteric, but I mean, because this is a golden period. Yeah, in the mid-80s it was, but then once the major labels caught on, it was getting harder and har- harder for IRS to sign bands. Of course. Because, you know, we could pitch them on the whole, you know, the concept. And, yeah, I mean, this is cool, man. Let's get in a van and yeah, yeah. play in front of 15 people and stuff like that. But once the majors entered in, then you talk All the money. hard work you've done is now the bedrock that everybody's well, building on. it's the on. money. It's like, yeah, yeah we're going to give this band, you know, $200,000 advance. So, you know, it was getting harder for IRS to sign Bands because we couldn't compete with the major labels. We just didn't have the the, the money. Well, and there's the famous story about uh, no matter you know when REM was getting uh, signed away to Warner Brothers, their their rule was no matter what uh, IRS offers you, we'll give you twice as much. Well, yeah, there was an interesting story there. Um, I had told Miles and Jay. I said if you are interested in keeping uh, uh, REM, one thing I would suggest is offer them their own label. Really? Okay, that's, that, yeah. And, you know, because Michael Stipe's sister was in a band. What was it? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. They kind of sound like And Mitch Easter. Yeah. We had Let's Active was already in the mm-hmm. label. So we kind of saw it as a way for R.E.M. to really 
be able to have their own, you know, freedom, maybe own their own masters of course. and stuff like that. Well, with which ultimately happened, I think, with with uh, Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. they retained ownership of their masters. RM Athens Limited was their company. Okay. Um, and I think um, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that what worked against IRS signing them was REM knew that Miles really wasn't into it. Okay. Oh, really? Even though Jay was. So all these years this, later, that's still yeah, the Achilles heel of the relationship. Yeah, Miles did not really just. You could tell the passion wasn't there yeah. as it was with Jay because Jay loved loved REM mm-hmm. as did everybody else at the label. But it was really Miles. I think he just like you know, hey, you want to sign with us? Sign with us. Not you know, <laughs> whatever. And you know, also the scene changed. You know, because you started having all the the hair bands started coming up, yep. and you know the college rock stations, the formats changed a bit, and the times changed. Yeah. And uh, you know, I would say that time between like 1979 and 85 were for IRS the golden years, and a lot of the golden years for Los Angeles. Because then the punk scene evolved into the hair bands. Yeah. You know, when you had all the Rat and Motley Crue. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and actually, as a side story, when I had Faulty, Motley Crue came into the office. They had their own record out. They came in yeah. with their leather cod pieces. And, and the label like, that they had started themselves was Leather Records. They yeah. were very into the leather thing. And they thing. came in and it's like, I have to say, I laughed them out of my office. Like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and you know what? You can't be right all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I, mean, I can't imagine you were the first nor the last. I'm to sure laugh, not. You laugh know, but whatever. Yeah. And um, but the scene changed and stuff like that. And you know, like I said, the major labels got involved in it. And then you had the Guns and Roses and you know, uh, Chains Addiction started happening in the later '80s. So. And what was uh, I mean? In looking back, what do you hold up as the the best band that didn't make it? That maybe was better live than they were recorded, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, out of all the bands you saw in this era. You mean on IRS? No, no, just uh, in oh your... God. Or we can just stick to IRS if uh, that's easier. That's hard to say, Ian. <laughs> I mean, there are there a lot. There yeah. were so many bands that were just so good. Who, I mean, but who do you think that should have been big? should have been a lot bigger. Okay. They were very, very pop. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately they were their own worst enemy. Is that so? And it happens a lot with bands because later we called, we said they suffered from the Birmingham disease. Okay. You know, where, okay, let's see, how can we best sabotage our own career? Yeah. And what happened, and what happens with a lot of bands is, you know, when you're a bunch of, you know, kids and you grow up together and you're in a van touring the country, it's like, yeah, we're all, we're all mates. Yeah. 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 And then... You have one guy writing the songs, but everybody's sharing the publishing. Of course. And then when the record's in the top five, it's like, wait a minute, I wrote the song and I'm splitting my royalties by five? Yeah. Uh, that doesn't work. No. And ultimately, like for a band like the English Beat, that's what happened. Now, how know? often do they play here? Because they play Minneapolis like every year. Well. Because it seems like, you know, the royalties aren't coming in as well as they used to because Dave Wakely is always out there. No, well, actually, he was here a week and a half ago and I got okay. to see him. Oh, okay, great. And uh, it. The, it's the English beat is is Dave. He's the only yeah, original member. Of course, because in ranking, Roger has his own version of the. He English, has his own version, though, I guess, of the beat. And uh, Andy Cox and Dave Steele. When you fine know, young criminals, which yeah, they were left, on, which and they were on, on IRS, IRS through yeah. the leaving member clause of the IRS agreement. So that's how fine young cannibals made the run over. Okay, yeah, because what happened is when they were on Arista Records in England, 
and Miles signed them to the U.S. to IRS records because the records on Sire were licensed from Arista. Okay. So Miles signed them for special beat service. Their third album was signed to IRS, but you sign, he signed all the band members as individuals. I see. Versus your key man who can have members come and go without a thing. So when Andy and Dave left English Beat, Miles or IRS had the first right of refusal for their new venture, which was Fine Young Cannibals. Okay. And that's when they put out. And on, in England, we never had the, the English Beat. So Fine Young Cannibals was on London Could records it, yeah, okay. in England with Roland and stuff like that. But they did great. Well, I mean, that's, you know, for just having a little clause in the contract, that's a nice little bit of cash. They- that's how it works. Yeah. That's how the music business works. And you mentioned uh, you just saw Dave Wakeling. What's your uh, relationship like presently with some of these guys? I assume you're still pals with a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I hung out with Dave for a while. Um, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, when the Go-Go's come here, I see them. You know, Vicki Peterson's married to uh, John Cowsill. Susan Cowsill okay. lives here in New Orleans. So I do keep in touch with, you know, a lot of these guys. You know, um, and where do you take them? What like what kind of madcap uh, level levity is found these days? Uh, pretty tame. Yeah, okay. You know, I mean, they they. I mean, I see uh, like I see uh, Johnette Napolitana from Concrete Bond, mm-hmm. and they were an IRS. And Johnette didn't talk about Concrete Bond. She were she was in a band called Dream Six, and she was a secretary at A and M Records when we were there. And then she she had Dream Six, and they broke up, and they started Concrete Bond. So, but still pals. Yeah, I mean, I talked to Stan, uh, Steve Wynn from Dream Syndicate, yes, who course. used to, was close, you know, back in the faulty early IRS days, had the Paisley Underground. You had the Bangles, the Long Riders, Rain Parade, um, Dream Syndicate, mm-hmm. Green on Red. Uh, that was the, pretty much a little click yeah. of all those bands from that, that era. And what brought you back here? Uh, well, the music business changed by the mid to late 90s. And in the mid 90s, I was managing the specials. No kidding. And uh, what a handful that was. Because, and that's the post Terry Hall yeah. after after everybody left to join Funboy 3. So you're like the Roddy Radiation. Jerry Dammer's still in the band at this no, point? No, Jerry never never went back. Okay. And um, I, I, when I left EMI Records, I started managing producers. And one of my clients was a guy named Stoker who was a drummer in Dexy's Midnight Runners. Okay. And then we did uh, did a lot of uh, tr- tracks for Sting, and we worked with Pato Bantan, who I mm-hmm. later managed. And Stoker and I put together a track for Pato, who had a number one, and I had UB40 do the vocals for it. It was like number one in England for like six weeks, sold a million singles in England yeah. alone. So... Um, um, I forgot where I was going. No, but that, I, but I, I, I asked you what brought you back here. Oh, and so, so anyway, I got tired. The music business changed, and it was just kind of like, you know. But he still like, seemed to be finding gold, though. I mean, he still seemed to be doing all right at it. Yeah, well, now I work at an architect firm and, you oh, know, no, renovate houses. Oh, no, but I mean, back in the mid-90s yeah, before yeah, he split. Yeah, yeah, And uh, I just got the specials were, were a handful. Yeah, so because, tell me about, so you're touring with them? Yeah, well, I was uh, a manager. Yeah, exactly. We had a tour manager, but, you know, you have... Some distinct personalities. There. Yeah, you've got Horace, the bass player, mm-hmm. who's very well spoken, educated, and then you had Roddy, who's this rockabilly guy that you know always likes to drink and stuff. Neville's like a total madman running around on stage, and, and Linval is a very down to earth kind of guy, and they they all have their own unique. How can I word this? <laughs> 
They're very unique, listening. distinct personalities. And okay. just, it works. Yeah. But to keep that in control is like herding cats. Yeah. They're all over the place. And, you know, Horace was all, and Linval were always the most reasonable and level-headed. And the other guys, and I got them their record deal after they reformed without Terry yeah. and Jerry. I got them a deal uh, on a label distributed by MCA called Way Cool Records. Mm-hmm. And that label was owned by, um, which is actually a pretty good album. I remember that. I remember that album very positive. Well, the album was done, cover was done by Shepard Ferry. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Stoker produced that album, and uh, you know, got a lot of college airplay. We went on advanced tours. We did dates with Rancid, mm-hmm. and it was great. I mean, they really managed to capitalize on a thing, and you know, they ran their course for a couple of years on it. They, you know internal combustion yeah and they went back home and then i think a few years they did spotty shows and then later terry got back in the band yeah what do you think about that because it's really odd so basically and you mentioned sticks earlier because it's kind of the same thing where band gets back together again but kicks out the the guy who wrote half the songs that no one apparently liked well they always wanted to have terry back Mm -hmm. but it was an opportunity for neville to like really showcase yeah and neville enjoyed being in the spotlight. But I mean, just to go back without Jerry, though, I mean, the guy... They knew that Jerry was never going to get back. Okay. And it was So a, that was his call. I kind of assumed yeah. the band was no, like, no, yeah, no, fuck no. that. They would have loved to have had him back, but he was never going to do that. Why not, you think? I think... Be, I never met him, mm-hmm. or no, just all I hear is, I think he was in such... The early, such in the early days of the band when it had such much more of a political yes. meaning that they had... Changed that from that original uh, bond that made the specials what they were, it evolved. And I don't think he really wanted to be as part of that that scene anymore. And um, I think he lost interest in it. Yeah, I mean, okay, so, but now you're here um, and doing some great work. You're the, I mean, how does it feel to go from rock and roll to being, you're like the president of the Neighborhood Association? What's the, you're the chairman, uh, uh, the chairman for the board of directors for the Bywater uh, member Neighborhood Neighborhood Association. Association. That seems very, very official. Yeah, yeah, it's great because, um, you know, and a lot of my friends that have moved here from Los Angeles, like I referenced earlier, um, they want to know what Bywater is about. I kind of equate it to what Silver Lake and Echo Park is in Los Angeles. Okay. What it was like in the early to mid '90s. Lots of you know, lots of musicians, artists, film people, writers. So it really has that real bohemian feel to it. And in the past several years, I mean, it's really a delicate balance because post Katrina the economic landscape of New Orleans has changed a lot, where primarily it had been like service industry related. Now you've got film people here, you've got tech people and medical people. So, um, um, you know, there's always a concern about gentrification. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a fine balance. We well, need New things Orleans here. Well, New Orleans is so great how it has. I mean, and, and I don't know if it's different here than it is, like, in the quarter, but where you can't tear any old buildings down. In Minneapolis, this is just unheard of. Like, you know. I mean, no, you we'll, can't do that we'll here. Just, we, we'll just chew stuff up and throw it away, and it's horrible. No, but no, here, no, no. We have, um, well, the uh, French Quarter is under the uh, jurisdiction of the Vucare Commission, mm-hmm. which is a separate entity. And they are incredibly strict. I think it was founded in the 30s. And they can eat, they tell you what color you can paint your house. Yeah. There's a limited palette of colors. Here, take your choice. <laughs> um, and the historic neighborhoods of New Orleans are, have jurisdiction under the historic district 
Landmark Commission, which they are involved in what the exterior of a house looks like. Uh, so if you want to change out those six over six windows across the street, um, you have to get approval. Wow, okay. You have to have certain types of boards, certain types of windows, roof. You have to get their approval before you are granted a, a permit from safety and permits to do any type of construction. Okay. That's on renovating old properties. If you want to do new construction, that's something different. So, I mean, and so what's under your purview here? What do you get to, I mean, you get to kind of preserve the beauty of the neighborhood, yeah, am I right? Yeah, we take, we, you know, we do beautification, we do blight, and get involved in blight. We have community activities. Um, we do get involved in zoning where people, you know, because uh, a lot of people want to put like restaurants or like Vaughn's where we are now because of some earlier rules, they can only have live music at one night a week, Thursday night. Really? Okay. That's it. And that was Kermit's, you know, that was Kermit, Kermit. is what he held down. Yeah. yeah. And then Kermit got away from doing the gigs here, and I think there's somebody else that plays in Thursday. Yeah, but I mean, that's just wild that you can only do it one, huh, okay. Yeah. Why so don't you loosen up do. on Vaughn's, John? Come on, man. Well. I'm I just think, joking. You don't have to give me a real diplomatic no, answer no, no, for that. No, 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 And I think it's something that we're trying to work out, and I know the owner wants to keep peace within the neighbors, because that oh, yeah. one night a rule was uh, put into effect by some immediate neighbors Okay. back in the... 80s so I mean it kind of left like that and so she's okay with it and so it's okay with us yeah if she's happy we're happy but you know it would be nice to be able to have you know more music once in a while of course as long as it doesn't disturb the neighbors yeah and there's a very friendly cat that lives in that window. I was here last night. There's a white cat that lives in that window that could not get enough of people walking by. And I walked over there and said hello. He loves it. I don't know. It's just a very no. It's just a literal cat. Just a nice little little cat there. And that's one of the things I love most about New Orleans. Very feline friendly. Yeah, I've got six of them. Really, and three outside. Wow, that's a lot of damn cats. Yeah, uh, my friends call me the crazy straight cat lady. <laughs> well, you know, could be worse. I yeah. All right. All right. So give me a number between one and ten, John. Five. Five. Good answer. I'm Libra. Balance. Okay. All right. Uh, what we're doing right now is what we do in every episode of Dive Bar Mitzvah. This is the James Lipton question. I will read a classic James Lipton question as read on Inside the Actors Studio. Am, but, am I going to embarrass myself? I, well, that's up to you, really. Okay. Uh, but it's going to be a question from a classic uh, episode of Inside the Actors Studio as read by James Lipton. You gave me number five. Number five. Ooh, okay. This is a good one. And no one's picked this one. Everybody always picks like three or seven. Figures. Everybody is very typical. But five is between three and seven. So number five is the first time we've done this in 15 episodes. Uh, number five, what sound or noise do you love? Look at that. Crunchy. Crunchy. So you just you like the you like to hear crunchiness or I like crunchy salads. Okay. As a matter of fact, for dinner I had a lovely uh, crisp lettuce and cabbage with sprouts. And I like my music crunchy. Okay. Because crunchy means it has an edge. And it has to have that edge. I don't like uh, homogenized music or I like things that ha- are crunchy and have an edge. So There you go. Well, that's that beautifully wrapped everything up, John. Well, thank Great. you very much for hanging out with me tonight at Vaughn's. Uh, I hope I hope you had a good time. This I know I did. I've been waiting for years to have since even before I had a podcast. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to hang out and chat with this guy. So, that is great. Seriously, thanks for uh, walking down memory lane with me a little bit. 
Ooh, and there's your closing theme. Um, all right, everybody. So yet again, John, thanks for doing this. And I would like to give a moment uh, of thanks to uh, Vaughn's for having us here and not kicking us out. Uh, make a check payable to uh, yeah, no problem. Vons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll, we'll make that happen right away. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, seriously, uh, some respect for our sponsors. That then we would not be able to do this. We have one car service driving smiles without extra miles. Call 612-545-5848 for a ride or find them on Facebook. I don't think it works in New Orleans, but you can try. They're really damn good. Program that number in your phone, 612-545-5848. Hey, and our friends at FGC Creative, um, who, and actually, I John, here, write down your address, because I'm going to send sure. you a t-shirt. Oh, cool. Um, our friends at FGC Creative, attention, uh, bands and bars, if you're looking for to get the most out of your marketing budget, we've got the deal of the year for you here at Dive Bar Mitzvah. FGC Creative will custom design a shirt with your logo and screen printed on the best shirts around, and here's the deal part. Say you heard it on Dive Bar Mitzvah, and you get them all for five dollars each there's no design fees no setup charges and free shipping visit them on facebook or fgc creative and yes they uh designed and uh, made our wonderful dive bar mitzvah t-shirts that you can pick up from me every tuesday at club jaeger while i'm doing tribiasco or if you find me on the street i will happily give you one also a shout out to our friends at Stand Up Records. We like our comedy like we like our booze, straight up and bitter. Check them out at StandUpRecords.com. They have new albums out all the time. Uh, we got new albums out by Jim David, Maggie Ferris, and um, if you have a Roku, go to their Roku channel, to the Stand Up channel. All sorts of great stuff there, including my old television show, Drinking with Ian, and always in the picture and always in good taste, Pamps Blue Ribbon. To add extra flair to leisure time activities, put original PBR in the picture. People of good taste naturally go for its old time beer flavor. Original Pamps brewed as it was when it won the Blue ribbon in 1893 so next time put yourself in the picture and enjoy original pamphlet ribbon john thanks again now let's go have um one of those delightful moscow mules here i'm ready thank all you right. Ian. thank you all right cool we got that knocked out that was fun